Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, let's go 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Well, this is a weighty text if you have spent any time this week reading it. I sent out an email asking you to read this text with a couple other things and got fussed at by one brother that's near and dear to my heart said, I'm giving you homework. Uh, yes, I am. A couple things before we read this text. Uh, a couple things I want to uh, just confess are challenges about these three verses that we are going to read today. We've been handling larger blocks in this book, and we're in no rush. A couple things are going to happen here, friends, just, just to put you at ease. Either we are eventually going to finish 1 Corinthians, or Jesus is going to come back. And, and, and both of those things will be uh, great. So uh, we're not going to a fire, all right? We're just, we're just taking our time. Uh, but there's a couple challenges. These verses that we're going to read today, these three verses contain some of the most devastating and simultaneously encouraging words in the entire Bible. And so the juxtaposition of those two truths brings with us some challenges. The first challenge is, is that, is that we, we are not very good, critical, slow readers as Americans. We have information overload, man. We, we watch Fox News while the ticker or CNN, or whatever your persuasion is. I know this kind of world is divided into Auburn and Alabama, Fox, CNN, whatever. We watch the talk show while the ticker is on. So you're kind of halfway listening while you're reading the ticker, while you're texting your boy and talking to your wife, right? So, I mean, we are not critical information gatherers. We, we skim the surface. We, we're like butterflies, man. That's what we would do. We flit around to bird feeders with sugar water in them, just, to, you know, just drinking with our little, little, the little long sucker tongue thing that butterflies have. We flit around just sucking sugar water. That's how we receive information. And there's like little butterflies. You know what happens to butterflies? They get hit by car windows, by cars coming. They get smashed. This is not a truth that we can just land on casually. These words are, are devastating and they're encouraging and they're monumental, man. You can't just flit on this one. This isn't one that you just put in a little book and bind it in leather and sell it at the bookstore for a promise for Tuesday. This is devastating truth. It must wreck us before it can build us back. And so the challenge is, is we have to read this slowly and critically and humbly. And the second challenge, that challenge is for all of us. The second challenge is, is for me personally is that, that uh, this verse is, is difficult to preach with any measure of authority because it, uh, I am a pardoned rebel. My life has been marked by many of the sins that will be listed that we'll speak about today. In fact, I was adding them up. There's nine or ten of them. I read them all. There's really only one that I think I have not been either guilty of in the flesh or have at least not just thought about briefly. In the, Jesus says if you even think about that, then you're guilty of it. 
There's one of them that I, by God's grace, has not touched my life. I think maybe it'll be obvious to you as we read it, but, but the point is, is that, is that I need to serve you well today by not holding back in false humility, but coming to you in strength from the, from the scriptures about these things because I need to serve you well because you and we and I need to hear this truth, not, not, not given lightly, but given in grace and strength and power and authority by, by Christ. So those are our two challenges. All right. Here's what we're going to do today. We're going to read these three verses, but before we do it, I'm going to do something very unusual. I'm going to give you my three points up front. That's all I got, three points, and then the rest of the day is just going to be unpacking those. And Reynolds said an hour and a half, two hours. Might lean a little bit heavier towards two hours today. I'm just saying the championships games don't start until like three or something like that, so relax. All right, we're going to be here. Three truths. The first is that we're going to talk about some theological terms, and don't be wimpy Americans now. Don't be wimpy Americans. Theological precision and theological terms are good for you, okay? They're good for you. They guard your heart. They teach you about Jesus. They're biblical words. The first is justification is God's act of declaring sinners pardoned, accepted, and righteous by grace through faith in Christ. That's what justification is. It's a biblical word. It means that we are justified as an act of God whereby he, solely because of his glory, Because of grace and the faith that he gives a person to exercise in Christ, he deems them righteous. He makes sinners righteous. That's what Romans 4 says. He justifies the ungodly. God makes sinners righteous. One time, it's an act of God. It's not something that we do, but God does it. He he declares us accepted, pardoned, and righteous. Not because we're good Americans, but because of what Christ has done. That's the first thing. The second thing then is that sanctification which follows justification is now then the lifelong process of growing into Christ-likeness. This is what the reformers said back in the 1500s and 1600s. They said that we are justified by faith alone. In other words, there's no work that you can do that makes you right with God. It says we are justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is not alone. So the faith that God gives you, that then by which you are justified in grace because of what Christ has done, carries with it power to make you more like Christ. And that's what sanctification is. It's the lifelong process. Everybody in this room, whether you've been a Christian for six minutes or whether you've been a Christian for 60 years, is still in process, still has struggle against sin and will not be relieved of that until you see Jesus face to face. And that, that's called glorification, but we're not going to talk so much about that today. So justification is God's momentary, forever act of declaring sinners righteous because of what Christ has done. Sanctification, then, is the lifelong process of sinners who now grow in Christ-likeness. And then the third truth, before we unpack these three verses, and this is really important, this is really the overarching point, I think, of these verses, is that justification leads to sanctification, not the other way around. In other words, God doesn't make you right because you've been getting a little bit more holy. God makes sinners holy, and then they, in ever-increasing glory, become more like Him. One is a very man-centered way of viewing 
the scriptures, and it is religious, and it kills. The other is a very God-centered way of looking at biblical truth, and it is the gospel, and it brings life. Justification leads to sanctification, not the other way around. Well, let me read, then we'll pray, then we'll chop it up. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Well, I'm going to pray. Pray for me. I need help. I am at certain times, as I preach always, but in particularly today, acutely aware of my inadequacy and insufficiency in delivering these profound truths today. So would you pray for me as I pray for us together? Lord, I... I need your help. And so would you come now and open our hearts to these words. Thank you for the ministry of navigators at Fort Benning. Thank you for all of our missionaries who are laboring well. There are some, even as we speak, who are in closed countries. God, even as we preach and listen and sing and gather together today, would you encourage them by your Holy Spirit? Would you do that? Would you be so kind as to do that? Lord, for the other churches in our area that we love so much that are preaching about Jesus, would you bless the churches in Columbus? Would a mighty river of gospel grace flow from the pulpits of this town? For my brother Keith Coward at Christ Community, for my brother J.W. Norman at Berean Covenant, for Marlon Scott at Emmanuel Christian Center, for the Baptist churches in town, for the Presbyterians and, and the Pentecostals and the Methodists and the non-denominational churches, Lord, would, would the gospel ring clear? Would people come to faith in Christ today? And Lord, today as we gather our hearts around this word, there are people in this room who know good biblical truth, but Lord, they are like, they are like a, a frozen corpse that has been brought back to life, but they've only been dethawed. Lord, would you take the man or the woman in this room that knows good truth, but is only de-thought, would you stir in them heat and affection for Jesus? Would you stir the man in this room who, who may know you, but his life has been stuck in the mud? God, would you, would you stir his affection for Jesus today? And Lord, for the person who is not yet a believer in Jesus, would you, would you do what only you can do? Would you bring a dead man or a dead woman or a dead boy or a dead girl back to life? 
would you turn on their heart to the glorious truth of this gospel? And Lord, would you, would you burn in our hearts today these words in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 9, Paul is making a transition from what he talked about in 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6. Remember, he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 5, excommunicating people from the church who are living in public, unrepentant, rebellious sin. And in chapter 5, he makes this case, and if you missed that, it's an important message. You can go to the information desk. I believe we have CDs of it. If not, we got it on the internet with all the notes. Paul makes this case that people that are claiming themselves to be Christians but living in unrepentant sin must be for their own sake dealt with and confronted in their sin. And if they still don't repent and turn back to Christ, the most loving thing you can do is put that person out of the church because we don't want to lie to them about the reality of the gospel. And as a church, we as a church can no longer... Listen, only God judges the heart. We, we can never make the ultimate determination on one somebody, whether or not somebody is a Christian or not. But what Paul is saying in chapters 5 and 6 is saying that the church carries a special responsibility to be clear about what the gospel is. And so when a person lives in unrepentant sin, they must, for their own soul, be put out of the church because we don't want to lie to them or give them the false impression that they're okay with Christ. And we now as a church can no longer validate their testimony because of their lifestyle. And so Paul is making this case that this Corinthian church, which was incredibly gifted, but also incredibly carnal and sinful, must do this hard work of being very clear, this courageous, loving work of being very clear with one another about the reality of the gospel and salvation and that Christianity is not just helping us out to be better, better more people, but it is Christ saving us, bringing us back from death to life so that we might live for his glory and our joy. And Paul is making this point and now he transitions in verse 9 and it's, it's almost if, to me as I read it, it's almost as if Paul is stopping and he's saying, well, now, wait a minute, do you, do you realize the seriousness of what we're saying here? We're not, we're not just talking about people no longer being a member of the Corinthian church or of Cross Point Church. He's saying, do you not know? Paul is underscoring his argument on the importance of judging and being clear with one another within the church. He's saying, do you realize how serious this is that, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That means that the unrighteous will not be with Christ forever. There are only two eternal possibilities for every person that has ever lived and every person in this room. There's no sort of middle ground for decent Americans. That's, that's sort of the subconscious assumption of a lot of people. Well, he was a good guy. He was a good guy. So maybe there's just kind of this little third level of sort of blissful ignorance or nihilism where people that you know, aren't crazy felons or terrorists. Maybe they weren't Christians, but you know, certainly. No, the Bible's clear that, that, that there's only two eternal possibilities for everybody in this room. You do realize that, right? And, and if you are not quite ready to realize that biblically, I would love to talk to you. But friends, that is clear, orthodox, historic Christianity. You don't hear it much in America today, but everybody in this room is either going to be with Jesus forever or you will be separated from Jesus forever. And that's just not a lesser than. 
That is what Jesus describes as a place where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. Heaven and hell hangs in the balance for people in this room today. We're not here to play tiddlywinks or to be the cute church that has a cool band and a nice building. Don't get caught up in the idolatry of American church culture. Heaven and hell hangs in the balance for every person that has ever lived and for some people in this room today. And Paul is underscoring that seriousness and he's saying, you you guys understand this, right? This is what we're getting at here. Don't be deceived. And then he lists some sins, lists 10 of them. In our English translation that we read from, there's only nine, but it's kind of combined two of the words together. And he lists these sins, sexual immorality. Now, next week, when we handle the rest of chapter 6, we are going to be much more specific and teach on this. So um, pray for me, buckle your seatbelts. We're going to get into that. But just as a little precursor to that, I hope you understand it. Again, we can't assume anything in our sexually obsessed culture. But sexual immorality is any sexual activity or contact with somebody who is not your spouse before or outside of marriage. That's what it is. And so if, if, if that's you today, by God's gracious providence, you are here hearing this message, and I encourage you to come back, because tomorrow or next week we're going to talk more specifically about that. He lists these sins, sexual immorality, idolaters. We, we tend to think of that as just having some strange statue of some eastern god in your house or something. But no, idolatry is when you put anything in the place of God. Idols can be your children, they can be your marriage, they can be your job, a myriad of things. Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. We are great at making idols. We worship all sorts of things. All of us in this room are guilty of idolatry. Or adulterers, that is, sex with somebody that is not your spouse. Nor men who practice homosexuality, that is a raging debate today. Listen, if you're struggling with same-sex attraction today, I don't believe that you can't be a Christian. All of us are sexually broken. If you have, if you have passed puberty, everybody in this room is guilty of sexual sin, whether in the flesh or in the mind. And because our world is so broken and because sin has seized humanity so deeply, there are certainly people who struggle with same-sex attraction that can get, that become Christians and sometimes God rids them of that desire and sometimes they still have to fight against that desire just like every heterosexual in this room still has to fight sexual temptation that is outside the bounds of God's plan even after they become married or become a Christian. And so if you are in this room today, and again, this is outside of what we're going to talk about today, a little bit of a tidbit for next week, but if you're in this room today and you have bought into the lie that the gospel has no place for people who struggle in that way, you have been lied to. Jesus is mighty to save. And he will save you and he will give you his righteousness. And just like the adulterer or the philanderer who becomes a Christian 
and may have to struggle against some of that abiding flesh in them, that same thing can happen to you if you struggle with that sin. You are not outside of God's grace if that is something that is characteristic of your life in the past. God can save. In fact, he delights in saving people who are in the worst of situations. And if that is you today, and because of broken legalistic church culture, you have never had a place where you can be real and confess and receive healing. My, one of my many prayers about Crosspoint is that this is a place where people who struggle with even that deep, deep sin of homosexuality can come and find Christ. More on that later. Neither thieves. <laughs> See, I, I've never stole, well, actually I have stolen something before in my life. It's been a while since I've told you this story, but remember I used to have this penchant for metal air caps when I was a little kid. I would steal them off of nice cars in my hometown, and then I would take them to the bike rack at Desert Gardens Elementary and sell them, because the same little air cap that fits on the spigot of a car tire also fits on the spigot of a, a little bike tire. Did you know that? I did. And... Back in the late 1970s in El Central California, that was just the thing. We wanted to put little metal air caps on our cars. And Dick Vermeil, who was the head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles at the time, later became the head coach of the St. Louis Rams and won a Super Bowl with Kurt Warner, was a friend of some people that lived down the street from me. And I got word that he was coming to dinner at their house. He had been the head coach at UCLA, had just become the head coach at <laughs> the Philadelphia Eagles. And Dick Vermeil came, and I mean, I don't know, I mean, certainly Dick Vermeil didn't drive his own car, but he rented a car, and it was a nice one. And, and I stole the metal air caps off of Dick Vermeil's car and sold them the next day at Desert Gardens Elementary for a little markup because it was Coach Vermeil's air caps. But here's the point. Even if you've never, even if you've never stolen anything, all of us are thieves of God's glory. Are we not? We all want to make it about ourselves. That's the constant battle of every human soul. We are born idolaters. We're born glory thieves. Greedy, drunkards, revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so these, this list of sins is, is not... And by the way, if you think... By the way, you're guilty of one of those, just, just so you know. Probably multiple like I am. I got every one of them covered except for one. Maybe not in the flesh, but I've at least thought about it. So Jesus says I'm guilty about these things. And, and so if you're looking at it and you're saying, whew, that, that's not me. No, no, friends. This is not the only thing that will keep you out of, of the kingdom of God or of heaven. These are just things probably that are characteristic of the Corinthian church or things that Paul knows are the hot topics that he's dealing with in this church that he lists and he says that if, if you're... If you're in this unrighteousness, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, here's the question. Who are the unrighteous? Who are the unrighteous? Is it just the people who are sexually immoral or in adultery or struggling with homosexuality or idolaters or adulterers or thieves or greedy people or drunkards? I mean, what if we say, well, my life's not necessarily characterized by any of those things. Who are the unrighteous? Friends, this is not an exhaustive list. This is just a list that is indicative of human fallenness. This is one of the most important questions you can consider. Who are the unrighteous? The Bible is clear on this. All of us are unrighteous. All of us. 
Reynolds read at the beginning of the service, Psalm 24. It says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Those who are pure in heart, who have clean hands. But here's sort of the, here's sort of the rhetorical question behind that psalm. And the balance of the rest of the scriptures, who has clean hands? None of us. None of us. None of us. I could spend the balance of our time together reading for you scriptures that support this point. But take my word for it and just hear from one witness of scripture in Romans chapter 3 verse 10. This is what Paul says in his monumental letter to the Romans. He says in chapter 3 verse 10 and 11 and 12, he says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. And so whether it is broken, crazy, outlandish sin, or whether it is turning to trust in self and become an idolater and trusting in self-righteousness, everybody in this room is born unrighteous and separated from God. And so we're presented with a dilemma. And that brings us to verse 11 where Paul continues and he says, And such were some of you. What is Paul saying there? Such were some of you. He's not saying that some were not unrighteous. In other words, not some of you were unrighteous. I think by saying some of you, Paul is is, is saying that some of, he's not saying that some of the Corinthian Christians were not unrighteous. Rather, he is drawing out some of the more drastic public sins that he's having to deal with in his correction of the Corinthian church. And he's chastising the church for not exercising discipline. But he's also wanting to encourage even the worst of people, even the most train wrecked of people in that place morally. He is saying to them, this is who you used to be, but it's not who you are anymore. But the balance of scriptures tells us that all of us, in some measure, all of us were unrighteous. That's what we just read in Romans 3. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There's a, there's a point that Paul gets at here that I think we just need to hammer home. Is he, he is saying to the Christians in Corinth that have previously and maybe still to some degree are struggling with these sins. He is saying that these things no longer identify you. When you think of yourself, what, what do you think of? If you're a Christian and Jesus has made you new and he has washed you, he has sanctified you, he has justified you, do you realize that's the truest thing about you? Do you realize that if you struggle with anything on this list or anything else that may characterize your past, that is no longer the truest thing about you? You ever hear a testimony in church and they just go on and on and on about their sin and then it's like a little 30-second sound bite like, yeah, and then I asked for forgiveness and Jesus forgave me. But the, the, it's like the identity of their life is still built on this past or maybe even to some degree current struggle. Do you realize, friends, that the biblical identity of a Christian is marked no longer by these things, but it is marked by what Christ has done for you? 
And this is what Christ does with sins. Listen to me carefully. If you've never heard the biblical gospel, what Christ has done, you're, you're about to hear the specifics of what Jesus has done. If you're a Christian and you somehow sort of get lulled to sleep every time I go over this, virtually every Sunday, or you kind of sit back and say, I got this, I pray that you would lean forward now because your heart needs to be stirred with affection for Jesus. Don't be a defaud corpse that is barely alive. The way you can fight sin is by remembering what I'm about to tell you. This is what Jesus does with sin. The Bible is clear that all of us have fallen and stand opposed to God in our natural state. And that Jesus comes and he lives a perfect life. He lived the life that you and I should have lived. He dies on a cross. He walks in complete righteousness. Hebrews says that he was tested in all ways as we are yet without sin. It said that he had to become like us in every way. So Jesus is not some distant God who's unacquainted with our struggle and trial. Jesus dips into the morass and the filth of human suffering, but he resists temptation completely. And he lives this life. He builds up righteousness. And then he willingly lays down his life on the cross. Jesus does. The Son of God, the creator of the universe, Colossians 1, he lays down his life on the cross and he absorbs God's judgment and wrath against our rebellion. Look, this is unpopular. This isn't, this isn't super fun to preach about. I mean, you know, I'd rather make you excited and have you clap after some point. I mean, I admit, I confess, that's the sort of the natural bent of my flesh. But do you realize that God is angry at human sin? Do you realize that? It's kind of this puppy dog view of God. Like he just, well, he's just sort of this grandpa up in heaven, just, well, whatever. Ha, it's okay. No, friends, that is not the biblical view of God. Do you realize that if you do not have a mediator, we are infatuated with relationship in America. Do you realize how cozy we are with the creator, the holy, righteous creator of the universe? That if we just think good thoughts about God and, and, and maybe sing a few kumbaya songs and go to church, that maybe God will be happy with us. Friends, do you realize that we need a mediator do we realize that God in his love is not only gracious, but he's also just? Do you realize that our notion of, of love as people is broken? Do you, realize, do you realize that the complete view of God's love is not that he's only amazingly good and gracious, but that he's also just? And the biblical view of God's love is, is that in his love, by maintaining his justice and order and supremacy and sovereignty and goodness in the universe, everything is made right. He doesn't hedge his bets. He doesn't, he doesn't round off the curve so that we wonder where it is. He is completely gracious and good, but he's completely just. And do you realize that a component of his justice and his righteousness, and his godness, and his beauty, is that he is angry at human rebellion. What right do we have to snub our nose at the creator of the universe and say, I'll do it my way? And God, in his goodness and kindness, is also severe. And in his goodness, he sends Christ to absorb human sin and absorb 
his righteousness against it. So that for those who trust in Christ, God is no longer angry. God is now, the the punishment for our sins has now been satisfied and Christ turns the wrath of God into the favor of God. That's why if you're a Christian, your song should be Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Do you realize the power and the beauty of that statement that if you are in Christ, God is no longer angry at you? He's not holding back his favor? It's not dependent upon whether or not you do good, but now you are good and you're free to be good because of what Christ has done, not because of you mustering effort? Do you realize that? Do you realize the power of Christ's wrath-absorbing sacrifice on the cross? And that is how God washes and justifies. Christ comes and he absorbs God's justice for human rebellion and for those who will turn and trust in him, then he brings justification. And lest any of us think that we bring the work of faith to the table, the Bible's even clear about that, that in Ephesians 2 it says that even the faith that we have is God's gracious gift to us. And that when God determines to save a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, he gives them saving faith that they then exercise in Christ. And in that moment, do you realize what happened at your salvation? You were not helped. You were not improved. You were not given a little bit of a nudge or a head start. You were brought back to life and you were washed. You were once and for all justified and you were sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize that? So, so, if you are a Christian now, that is the truest thing about you. Do Christians still struggle with sexual immorality? Yes. Idolatry? Yes. Adultery? Yes. Homosexuality, certainly some do. Thieves, yes. Greediness, drunkenness, yes. Revilers, swindlers, yes. We still struggle with these things, but they are not now the truest thing about us. The truest thing about a person who has been justified is that they are washed, sanctified, and right with God. That's the truest thing. I don't care if you've had the worst week. I don't care if your marriage is on the rocks. I don't care if your kid is rebellious. I don't care if you lost your job or if you're anxious about your future or if you're struggling with some sin or even this weekend, young man, you had to fight the urge to download pornography. If you're a Christian, the truest thing about you is not that you're a pervert, not that you're a reprobate, but that Christ in his glory has done something that you could not do. He has saved you. That was weak. <laughs> when Mark Sanchez throws a touchdown pass this afternoon, some of you will get more excited about it than that. But, or maybe you're just soaking it in. I don't know. I, so the truest thing about you is that you are justified. So let's now go to Romans chapter 8. And I'm going to end with these words. Romans chapter 8. 
Before I read these words, let me just give you a little quote to kind of summarize what I've been saying here. You know the book Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan? You ever read that? Great Puritan author and writer. He wrote a wonderful book called Puritans, or called Pilgrim's Progress. It's for sale in our resource room. He also wrote a book called, which I'm reading right now, it's called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. I love it. This is what Bunyan said about what we've just talked about. He said, the law commands us to run and work, but it gives us neither feet nor hands. In other words, this law of God that says, don't be an idolater, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. He says, the law commands us to run and work, but it gives us neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings. It bids us to fly and it gives us wings. And so the message here in this passage and what the point of this whole message today is, is not to do better so that God will accept you. It's that if you're a Christian, God has accepted you based on what Christ has done. So now live in that. Don't run and work in hopes that at the end of the day you might get accepted by God. Trust in what Christ has done alone because of the faith that he's given you. And fly, fly, because he has given you wings. Well, this is what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. Now, these verses carry with them such incredible weight and such deep glory. And for some Christians, they cause much consternation and controversy and angst and argumentation. And I want to plead with you for just a second to not view what we're about to read in the category of some doctrinal stance between Calvinism and Arminianism or Reformed or free will or God's sovereignty. I want you to personalize this for a second. And think about the beauty of what's going on here in these verses. So here's the question. Who does God justify? Okay, so remember, we, start, we, start, we started off this by saying, who, who are the unrighteous? All of us. All of us are unrighteous. And so, how does God make unrighteous people justified? That's the question. How does... How does a person go from unrighteousness to righteousness? How does a person go from Psalm 24 to to life in Christ? How does a person go from from Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one, to all of a sudden, verse 11 in 1 Corinthians, and now, but you're washed, just by occasionally showing up to church, thinking good thoughts, having a Bible reading plan, working the nursery, Given to navigators? No. This is how it happens. And it is beautiful, and it is God-exalting. And it is some of the most important words ever written. Romans 8. And we know, this is a coffee cup verse. This is what people put on t-shirts for youth groups. But oh, if they only knew the beauty behind it all. And we know that for those who love God, 
In other words, not everybody loves God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So somehow in his mysterious providence, God takes sin, sickness, and tragedy and providentially controls every molecule in this universe so that it ultimately arranges, maybe not in the here and now, in the temporary, but in eternity, ultimately arranges for the good of his children and for the glory of his name. Friends, if you're going to fight cancer, if you're going to fight a rebellious teenager, if you're going to fight marital strife, if you're going to encounter a broken world, you need to have that truth in your quiver. That God ultimately, if you're going to fight a crazed gunman, if you're going to wrestle with thoughts of where God is in the midst of evil, you need that truth in your quiver. That God ultimately, mysteriously, providentially works all things out for the eventual good of his children and for his glory. Let's keep going. For those, so who did he do this? And now we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Those who are called. So evidently here, not everybody is called according to his purpose. Let's keep reading. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so what this verse is saying is, is that those whom God sets his love on Foreknew before the foundations of the earth, not because of anything good in them, but because God is loving and gracious and delights in saving train wrecks like us. God in his goodness set his love upon. He foreknew, he predetermined the destiny of those whom he called to be conformed to the image of his son in order that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30. Let's get, now we're, Honing in on our word justification. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. There's our word. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Friends, the, the theologians call this the golden chain of salvation. Do you see the power in this? Oh, don't be pushed away from this high view of God in these verses. Be drawn near to a God who delights to save. This is good news. This means that it's not dependent on you mustering your ability, but God in his gracious providential goodness sets his love on his people. And he arranges their life, whether it's triumph or tragedy, so that in his providence, they will come to him because at some point in their life, he brings the gospel to them. And the gospel is what it means to be called when it hits your heart. 
And maybe it's a Bible study on a hill in Afghanistan. Or maybe it's a church in Columbus, Georgia. Or maybe it's a college group in the midst of a drunken stupor. Somebody witnesses to you outside of the frat house and tells you about Jesus. Or maybe it's in the midst of some trial or tragedy. But the gospel is mighty to save. And he calls people. And the truth of what Christ has done for you and for me and for the whole world hits a human heart. And it doesn't just make the way for salvation possible. It actually saves people. And the gospel comes in and he calls us. And then it justifies us right there. So friends, salvation is not dependent on you or me conjuring up enough good works. It's dependent on God's great mercy. If that is bad news for you, if that causes resistance in your spirit, I submit to you, friends, not that you can't be a Christian if you don't understand that, but I submit to you that you are trying to say to God that part of the reason I am saved is because of me. And the beauty of this truth, friends, is that God delights in justifying people who are running headlong away from them. And he arranges events in their life so that they will come to faith in him. And by that faith that he gives them, he justifies them. And then he begins this process of sanctification whereby in ever-increasing measure, they become more like Jesus. So what's my point here today? Is have more confidence in God's graciousness than in your ability to straighten out your life. If you are far from God today, this is great news because it depends not on him who wills or runs, but on God who has mercy, Paul says in Romans 9. So if you're struggling with sin and you're a Christian, do you realize the power of this? Do you realize that the holy word of God has said that God determined before time to arrange your life so that you would over the course of time be transformed into the image of God? You realize I was a Christian for maybe 10 or 15 years struggling with besetting sin. In particular, young men, listen to me. In particular, sexual sin and lust and hidden lusts in my heart. And do you realize that when I received the truth of this verse and the view of God was lifted in my mind so that I realized that God had invested so much more in me than I could even imagine, that propelled my sanctification because I realized that God has guaranteed, listen to me now, God has guaranteed that I will be transformed into the image of his son. I'm not making that up. I'm not, no, let me read it again. Though, listen to this, 29. Those whom he foreknew, that's a Christian, somebody whose heart is open to the gospel, he also predestined to be to conform to the image of Christ. And so if you're fighting a battle with sin, Christian, Do you realize that you can jump into that fray knowing that you win because of what Christ has done for you? Do you realize that, young woman, who wants to give up her body to some punk so that you can be validated because of a relationship? Do you realize that you can resist that not because of moral teaching or a Sunday school lesson, but because Christ, 
has given you his righteousness. He's justified you and he has guaranteed that you will be made like him. Do you realize that from that position is how you fight sin? You don't fight it by mustering strength. You fight it by trusting in Christ. And if you're a Christian, there is so much glory in that truth. There is so much confidence. There is so much strength in resting in the gracious, sovereign grace of God rather than your own will to make yourself better. And I end with this. And this is particularly good news if you're not a Christian. Why? Because do you realize you don't, you don't have to bring anything to the table. Friend, don't, don't spend any time thinking about whether or not God has called you. If you are here right now and you're hearing my voice and you're understanding what I'm saying, God is opening your heart to his mercy. This is what Spurgeon says about how God justifies people. This is what Spurgeon says to you in this situation right now, whether or not you are realizing whether or not God can save a person like you. This is what, listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon, my hero from the 1800s in London. He says, I shall be content if I leave you with this one thought. Look not beneath the ice to find the fire. Neither hope in your own natural heart to find repentance, but rather look to the living one for life. Look to Jesus for all you need between the gate of hell and the gate of heaven. Never seek elsewhere for any part of which Jesus loves to bestow. But remember, Christ is all. So don't let this human pride smashing truth and this God-glorifying truth of God's sovereign grace push you away. Let it be the thing that is the only thing that can give you hope. Therefore, you don't need to look within yourself. Look to Christ. He loves to save sinners like us. Look to Christ. Friends, he never rejects anybody that comes to him. He never pushes anybody away from him. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Whosoever will, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you have not trusted in Christ, if you are ridden with guilt, if you are washed in sin, if that list of things identifies you, come to Christ right now. He delights, he delights in making sinners his own. He freely gives grace. He freely offers repentance. He saves. Come to Christ even now. Turn from your sin. Turn from trust in yourself and trust in Jesus. He alone can satisfy. He alone can save. He is more than willing. He's far more willing than you are, friends. He is far more gracious than you are strong. Come to Christ even now. Come to Christ, young man. Don't, don't waste your life in sin and rebellion. Come to Christ even now. Come to Christ now. Now, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Friends, that's you. 
That's you if you haven't trusted in Jesus. The Lord is mighty to save. His ear is not dull. His arm is not too short. Come to Christ. Even now, turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus. Have more confidence in his gracious goodness than your will. And be propelled into this life of living for something far more glorious than a 401k or a suburban or a house or a boat or a golf game. Friends, live for Christ because he alone can satisfy. Do that even now. Do that even now as I'm praying. Turn, turn from your idols. Turn from your lusts. He can do it. He, he did it to me. Young man, my, my life was characterized by secret sin and rebellion. My life was characterized by, by, by glory thievery. My life, I was headlong running towards destruction, but not because I'm intelligent, not because I'm strong, but because God is gracious. He, he saved me. Do that right now. Do that right now. Turn, come to Christ. Come to Christ, young man. Young woman, don't play the religious game. Come to Christ even now. He is willing to save. That's who he is. That's what he does. Let's pray. Father, you delight. You delight in making your name great. And I can't think of anything more God-glorifying than making something that's dead alive. So Lord, would you do that? For my friend that's in this room right now who has been racked with guilt or who's been racked with doubts or because of the God-given intelligence that you have given them has wandered into human reason and exalted that above faith in Christ. Lord, would you melt that heart of ice save them today so that they would turn from trusting in themselves or their own reasoning or their own intelligence or they would turn from coddling some destructive sin and they would look up and see Jesus the one who doesn't offer a list of do's and don'ts the one who washes and sanctifies and justifies so that true, lasting, eternal joy may finally be theirs. God, would you cause my friend right now who's in that state to trust in you? Would you bring them to life through the glorious gospel of Jesus? And Lord, secondly and finally, for my Christian brother or sister in this room. God, would you break into that man's heart that what he, he, the secret to him battling life is not just another accountability group or cleaning up his act, but the secret is falling in love with Jesus who saves seeing that you have guaranteed by your gracious love 
that he will be transformed. God, would you let the man in this room who grew up a Christian, who's just in mediocrity, who's, who's in autopilot, who's got, he's got no passion in his heart, and he's, he's just on auto, he's just, he's just sort of walking through life with, with no abiding sense of victory. God, would you, would you let this truth light him on fire? Would you make that barely defaud Christian catch a flame for the power of sovereign grace, which delights in making men and women showcases of joy and satisfaction in God alone? God, would you do that? And would you do that in my heart of friendship today? I pray all these things, Lord, for your glory and for the joy of your people. And now as we respond, Lord, would you break chains? Would you clarify futures? Would you, would you nail down your truth and your love in the hearts of your people? And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.